This is the podcast for RUF at the University of Texas. A community for students to experience God's grace and express God's grace to others. For more information, visit www.ruf.org slash UT. Or find us on Instagram at TexasRUF. So, here we go. Um, We are going to begin tonight uh, the way that we end our RUFs, by looking at this verse that I have been saying over y'all. Um, every, every large group, we end with Zephaniah 3.17. The reason, the reason that I started doing this, when I was in the eighth grade, I had a youth pastor who told me about the Samaritan woman at the well, this woman that Jesus walked up to, who she had done nothing to earn his attention. In fact, she was an outcast uh, from her society. She was a known sinner. She was the last person that you would imagine that a rabbi would want to approach. And yet Jesus came to her. And not only did he come up to her, but she's the first person in the book of John that Jesus tells that he is the Messiah. And he shows her great grace. And my youth pastor told, taught that to me. He taught that that God actually moves toward sinners and that he delights in them and loves them and pours out his grace upon them. And that that's not just a nice, friendly idea. It's in the Bible. That's what the Bible teaches about who God is. And every night he would end by telling us Zephaniah 317. And so as one beggar who's simply telling another beggar where he found bread, I have every night when we finish told you these words, which I I could read them like we usually do. I'm just going to say them to you. Um, Tonight's scripture is Zephaniah 317. It's that the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He'll quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The grass withers and the flowers fade. These words of our God will stand forever. And they're given to us because he loves us. And they're true. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray now that you would speak to us through it. Help us to see Jesus and our need for him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Can I have that? bottle of water. My mouth is dry. I'm a little nervous. This is my last one. Thank you. Chrissy Trap. Um, so my sermon tonight is a last word. It's the title of the sermon. Um, and it's not just because it's my last time to preach to you guys as your campus minister. It's not just because this is our last meeting of the semester. It's not just because I'm preaching about Zephaniah 317, which is My last words to you every single week, it's really because of who the last word of the Bible is. The book of Hebrews tells us that God's final word to us is Jesus of Nazareth. And that's that's who tonight is about. That's who every night at RUF is about. This man who walked among us, a historical, real-life figure named Jesus of Nazareth, He is God's last word to us. And so I want to look at this passage from Zephaniah 
and we're going to break it up into small chunks. It's a six-part sermon. Yeah, I'm usually three parts, six parts, last one, double it, y'all, here we go. Okay, it's not going to be like ten hours, so don't worry. But, point one, the Lord your God. Your God. I think that um, we often don't consider the beauty of how God uses possessive pronouns when he describes us and his relationship to him. That he's not just the Lord, the God. He is the Lord, your God. That, I mean, think about like, if you were to introduce somebody and you were to say, like, this is, this is John. How different does that sound from this is John to this is John, my friend? The possessive pronoun, mine. This is my person. This is, this is Chrissy Trap, or this is Chrissy Trap, my wife, or my daughter, my mother. And God says, I am the Lord, your God. Song of Solomon um, says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. God speaks about us and his people with possessive pronouns. Actually, fun story. My, um, my Hebrew professor in seminary, he, he was a brilliant man. Like one time when the Dead Sea Scrolls came to Dallas and you could like go and look in the museum, one of the, uh, our students was like, Dr. Grapp, are you going to go see the Dead Sea Scrolls? He was like, well, actually, I've seen them before when I translated them. <laughs> we were like, oh, cool. That was you. Like you were one of the guys who did that. Like literally one of the leading Hebrew scholars in the world. And uh, he did kind of talk like that, too. But when one of my friends uh, was like, Dr. Grapp, I got a, um, a tattoo in Hebrew. Do you want to see it? And he, Dr. Grapp like, looked at him and was like, <laughs> like, what is it? And it's the, it was a tattoo of Song of Solomon. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He's like, actually, in modern Hebrew, um, the, that word for um, my beloved is uh, in modern, it's Masculine, and so it, that reads closer to "I am my uncle's, and my uncle is mine." <laughs> so we just would like we like died laughing at that. And my friend's tattoo, like, "Oh, you really love your uncle, don't you?" He sounds like a great guy. Um, and I think I think that for I think that for some of you, and I know this has been true in my life before, God can feel like a distant uncle. Not like my beloved, and like I am, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. That's part. We sing that, and we sing the sands of time are sinking. I am my beloved. My beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. But that tattoo sounds sounded funny because the nature of the relationship didn't match the intimacy described with it. You know, no one is that tight with their uncle. And I wonder if for you sitting here tonight. Did, is God your beloved and are you his? Do you think of yourself that way, that you are, you are the beloved? You are his. You know one way that, we, um, that maybe you can think about that and even evaluate yourself on that? How do you pray? More specifically, when you pray, how do you address God? Fun, one thing I would love for you to take away from tonight... This is just a simple little tidbit. 
God, if, if Jesus is God in the flesh and his disciples ask him, they did, they asked him, how should we pray? Teach us to pray. So this is God telling us how to pray to God. Pretty like, pretty good insight about to come here. God tells us how to address God when we pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven. Father, when you pray, do you call God Father? Or do you call him something else? Dear God, thank you for this day. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Dear Father, thank you for this day. I'm not like here to shame people who are like, dear Lord, tribe. Okay, that's not, that's not, I'm not trying to do that. But I do want you to think about, like, if my kids came to me and they were like, dear pastor, would you come and eat lunch with us today? I'd be like, why are you calling me pastor? I know that's like a role that I have. And Lord is a role that God has. He is Lord over all things. I would, it would be kind of a bummer, though, if like Lucy Trapp came up and was like, excuse me, disc golfer, could you come and hang out for a little bit and play a game with me? I'd be like, okay, that, that, that is me. I do like to play disc golf, but that's not, like, that's not us. I'm your father. When you pray, are you your beloved's and is he yours? That's how God identifies himself with his people. Maybe you are his, but you don't think of him that way. He thinks of you that way. The Lord, your God, is with you. The Lord, your God, is with you. Now, God being with you can be incredibly comfortable, comforting, but also terrifying. God with you. Meaning God sees you. He knows everything about you. He knows the truth about you. And in the context of this passage in Zephaniah, Israel, Israel's dealing with the reality that God is with them and he has seen everything that's true about them. Let me illustrate this way. Imagine that you have a friend who, like some of our UTRUF graduates, goes, they've done this. They've gone on and they've gone to work for IJM, International Justice Mission, to fight sex trafficking in Southeast Asia. Okay? Imagine you have a friend who graduates from UT and they go and they do that. And they do that for three years and then they move back and they, they move in with you. They're going to live in an apartment with you. Maybe in Houston so you can go to Christ King Presbyterian Church. But that's another story. Um, but they come back and they tell you all about their experience fighting sex trafficking in Southeast Asia. They, they tell you about the destruction that they've seen in individual lives in the lives of families, the lives of communities. They tell you about the evil complicity of government officials in the sex trade. They talk about the ways that the weakest people in society are deceived, lied to about a fake job opportunity, taken from their home, forced into drug addictions, made to do unthinkable things, all for the pornography industry. They tell you about what they've seen, how they've seen this affect children and women, how they've seen orphans brought up in brothels, 
that tell you they've seen all of this. And this friend comes home, they move in with you, you're glad to have them back, they're telling you all these crazy stories. A lot of the stories are sad stories, but some of them have happy endings. But that's your friend, and you're living with them, and you're glad to have them back. And two months go by, and they leave the apartment, and you pull out your computer, and you go to Pornhub. And you're logging in, and right then they walk back into the room because they've forgotten their keys. And they see what you're doing. They see. Now, for, for anyone to see that, it would, you would, it would be shameful. It would be embarrassing, maybe. Or maybe, maybe you feel like it wouldn't be embarrassing. But it is. But I want for you to imagine that person walking in. Imagine the betrayal that they would feel. And it's a, it's a different kind of shame, I think, that we would feel because the person who's walked back into the room, they've seen the destruction, the destruction that the pornography industry has caused throughout the world. They've seen the back end of this sin that so many people tell themselves it doesn't really hurt anyone. They've seen the wreckage it causes. That's what, it, that's what it's like to have somebody with you who knows the destructive power of your sin. And God knows the destructive power of our sin, and he's with us. So he knows what our greed does. He knows what our gossip does. He knows what our deception does. He knows what our cheating on homework and quizzes does. He knows what our self-centeredness and laziness and overconsumption does, and he hates it. He hates it, and he will judge it. And most of the book of Zephaniah is about just that, that God is going to judge the nations and Israel and his own people because of what they've been doing, because he's been with them. And what he calls them to do in Zephaniah 2 verse 3 is to seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. You see, God is, he is with us in this world, and he sees everything that's true about me, which is not a pretty sight. He knows the truth about me. He knows the truth about you. And what he calls us to do is to humble ourselves before him. Why? Because the Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. The only one who can save you from the wrath of God is God. He is the one who is mighty to save. God does all the saving and it's all about him. That's the good news of the gospel. It's not about you figuring out how you can clean yourself up, how you can make things right with God. It's simply humbling yourself before the God of the universe and asking him for help. And he's so committed to making you right that he became a man. He became the final word, the last word from God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He really did become God with us. This is a radical idea from Christianity. No other religion has 
this kind of claim that God himself became a man. Matthew 1 quotes the prophet Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Lord your God is with you. He's so with you. He's mighty to save. And the way that he is with us and saves is he became a person. Madeline Lingle, who wrote a read one time, if you ever read a great book, she says, The virgin birth has never been a major stumbling block in my struggle with Christianity. So she's like, okay, in terms of like doubts and like just having to wrap my mind around like really hard concepts, the virgin birth has never been a major stumbling block in my struggle with Christianity. It's far less mind-boggling than the power of all creation stooping so low as to become one of us. The one who thought up like thermodynamics and nuclear fusion and the cosmos and black holes and dark energy, the one who knows everything on the subatomic and on the universal level became a man. He became a person, God with us. Here's what that means. It means that God is with you Jesus became a man and he, think about what he identified himself with. When he came into the world, he, he didn't identify himself with fame, with wealth, with power, all the things that we are allured by. Jesus identified himself and stepped into a life of wretchedness and poverty and misery and taking on sin upon himself and injustice. And what that means is that the hidden things about your life where you have experienced poverty, neediness, grief, God knows it. He's with you in it. That's what he identifies with. So God is with you in the ways that you hate your body. Or he's with you in the way that you fear your friends. Or in the way that you experience social anxiety. That's where God wants to actually be with you. Not the perfect, beautiful parts of you. He loves that too. But where he really wants to be are the needy parts of you. The weak parts of you. He can be with you in your despair. Down the road, listen, seniors, RUF's not always going to be with you. The Lord your God will be with you, and he will be mighty to save. He will be mighty to save in your disappointments, or in the tragedies that befall you, or a broken marriage, or a child who dies, or infertility. Or losing your job, the Lord your God is with you in those things. That's where He wants to be with you, and He's mighty to save. Um, I came across a story that I think illustrates this really beautifully. It's about um, a family from Sweden 
David and Sabea flood. In 1921, they decided to move with their uh, one young boy to what is now modern-day Zaire, to a remote part of Zaire to tell people about Jesus. They arrived there with another couple and were immediately blocked by the chief of the tribe. Wouldn't allow them to come and tell them about Jesus. 600 people living in this little village in the remotest part of Zaire. So the one thing that the chief would have let them do is uh, there was a, one little boy from the village who was allowed to go two times a week to sell them eggs and, um, and like, yeah, from his chicken. And so Svea Flood, the woman of the family, decided to befriend this young boy and to tell him about Jesus. And that's the only person that she ever told about Jesus. And soon after they were there, she became pregnant. And they, um, months went by. The other people in their group began to get malaria. One after the other after the other. Sickness was befalling them. No converts except for this one child. Until finally, the, the family that had come with them, they gave up. They're like, this is, we're not getting anywhere with this. We've been here for a couple years now. We're leaving. The Flood family stayed. And Svea Flood gave birth to a little girl named Ina. But she labored in her birth and Svea died. And at that moment, David Flood, the father, something in him snapped and he was like, I'm out. I'm done. I'm taking my son back. He leaves little Ina at the, the mission station in central Zaire. He says... God has turned his back on me and my family, and I'm finished. And he left. Ina was adopted. This is a true story. Ina was adopted by an American missionary family. They brought her back to America. They said, we, you know, we've got her back home. They fell in love with this little girl. They named her Aggie. And I think it's short for August. Augusta, whatever. They named her Aggie. And... They, uh, they said, we're, we're just going to stay here. Can't go back to Africa. We might lose her in some kind of government stuff. So they stayed here. They raised this little girl. And she grows up following Jesus. She marries a man named Dewey Hurst. They um, moved to Seattle. Dewey's the president of, uh, of a college there. And one day, Aggie Hurst, sitting at her house, goes to get the mail. And in the mail... There is, for some reason, a magazine from Sweden in her mail. Apparently, there's like a big Swedish population in Seattle. She starts flipping through the pages, and it's all in Swedish language. And she freezes when she sees a picture of a little white cross. Because she's seen that cross before. She hurries to the college where her husband works because she knows that there's somebody there who will be able to translate the words that are under this cross And what she hears, what he tells her is that this is a story about a missionary couple that came to this place decades ago. And a little white baby was born in this community, but the mother died. But after the family left, there was one little boy that they had told about Jesus. And he grew up 
And he convinced the chief of the town to let him start a school. And after he started the school, he began to tell all the other children in the village about Jesus. And they told their parents about Jesus. And the parents told the chief about Jesus. And now there are 600 people in this village called Nadalera in Zaire who are following Jesus. And she finds out her name. She sees this cross, her mother's cross, Savea Flood. And then she discovers through this where her father, David Flood, is now living. And I'm going to read to you the rest of the story. For the Hearst 25th wedding anniversary, the college presented them with the gift of a vacation to Sweden. There, Aggie sought to find her real father, an old man now. David Flood had remarried, fathered four more children, and generally dissipated his life with alcohol. He had recently suffered a stroke. Still bitter, he had one rule in his family. Never mention the name of God because God took everything from me. After an emotional reunion with her half-brothers and half-sister, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing her father. The others hesitated. You can talk to him, they replied, even though he's very ill now. But you need to know that whenever he hears the name of God, he flies into a rage. Aggie was not to be deterred. She walked into the squalid apartment with liquor bottles everywhere and approached the 73-year-old man lying in a rumpled bed. Papa, she said tentatively. He turned and began to cry. Ina, he said, I never meant to give you away. It's all right, Papa, she replied, taking him gently in her arms. God took care of me. The Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. The man instantly stiffened. The tears stopped. God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. He turned his face back to the wall. Aggie stroked his face and then continued undaunted. Papa, I've got a little story to tell you, and it's a true one. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you won to the Lord grew up to win that whole village to Jesus Christ. The one seed you planted just grew and grew. Today there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you are faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. He's never hated you. The old man turned back to look into his daughter's eyes. His body relaxed. He began to talk, and by the end of the afternoon, he had come back to the God he had resented for so many decades. Over the next few days, father and daughter enjoyed warm moments together. Aggie and her husband soon had to return to America, and within a few weeks, David Flood had gone into eternity. It's not over. It's gets better. A few years later, the Hursts were attending a high-level evangelism conference in London, England, where a report was given from the nation of Zaire. The superintendent of the National Church, representing some 110,000 baptized believers, spoke eloquently of the gospel spread in his nation. Aggie could not help going to ask him afterward if he had ever heard of David and Savea Flood. Yes, madam, the man replied in French, his words then being translated into English. It was Savea Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. In fact, to this day, your mother's grave and her memory are honored by all of us. He embraced her in a long, sobbing hug. Then he continued, you must come to Africa to see, because your mother is the most famous person in our history. 
In time, that is exactly what Aggie Hurst and her husband did. They were welcomed by cheering throngs of villagers. She even met the man who had been hired by her father many years before to carry her back down the mountain in a hammock cradle. The most dramatic moment, of course, was when the pastor escorted Aggie to see her mother's white cross for herself. She knelt in the soil to pray and give thanks. Later that day in the church, the pastor read from John 12, 24, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He then followed with Psalm 126, 5. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. God's work is not dependent on us or how we feel about how he's doing or how we're doing with him. God's work is dependent upon him. He is mighty to save. The Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He'll take great delight in you. God doesn't just accept you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He takes great delight in you. You ever thought about that? My friend, Les Newsom, who's RDF campus minister at Ole Miss for a long time, he said one time he was sitting uh, at a restaurant waiting for a student to show up. He's reading his Bible, and this, like, friendly old man, like, walked up next to him. He's like, Sonny, I just want you to know that God's got a picture of you in his wallet. (laughs) Just like, just like, kind of a cheesy thing to say, but, but... That's dead on. What do you, who do you put, whose picture do you put in your wallet? Someone you delight in. Someone that you, you love. Someone that you like. You ever thought that God likes you? He doesn't just love you. He likes you. He delights in you. Don't we love being delighted in by our father? My kids do this all the time with me. They'll be like, they will be doing the most random thing. It's not like, it's not that cool. But they'll be like, dad, watch this. Dad, 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 watch this. And I'll look over and George is like, (laughs) just like some, or they're like, jump off a step and like stick a landing or something like, watch this, dad. I'm like, that is awesome. Wow. Great job. Okay. Can I like go back to this thing? You know, but they, they just, they want to be delighted in the Lord. Your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He'll take great delight in you. He sees you. And if you are in Christ, he delights in you. Not because of what you've done, but because of what the Lord Jesus, who came and was with us, what he did on your behalf and what you have now by faith alone in him. He delights in you. He'll quiet you with his love. Do you feel anxious? When you feel anxious, you ever feel anxious? It's like there's this noise that just crawls up inside of you. And it's in your mind, but it's also maybe in your chest, on the back of your neck or in your shoulders. I don't know where it it might be for you, but that anxiety that just, it's loud. 
what God wants to do with us when he loves us is to quiet us. We can be quiet with our father. David says in Psalm 131, O Lord, my heart, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. That's what's happening when we're anxious. We're thinking about things that are too great for us, that are beyond our control. How, how am I going to do at that party? How am I going to do on this test? Am I going to get into that grad school? Those are things that we ultimately cannot control. But if we have a father who is in control, more control than you could ever be, and, and he loves you more than you could ever imagine, that will quiet you. It begins to quiet us. David goes on and says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. David's soul is like a weaned child because he has the quieting love of God. No more performing, no more having to prove himself, no more arguing his case. He can be quiet with God. And last point, he'll rejoice over you with singing. Think about that. God looks at you and so delights in you that he sings, that he will sing. You've been united to Jesus. And so the kind of smile and delight that God has in you is the same delight that he has in his son, Jesus. That's what the Christian has. That's what's offered to you. Not by what you do, but by faith in him alone. You get the delight of the Father. And he sings over you. I, I thought about that. What? That's gonna, I have no idea what that's going to sound like. God invented music. He thought of the possibility of Mozart and Chopin and J. Cole and Willie Nelson. All of, he made the world so that that kind of music could exist. And he, the chief musician, sings over you. I went on YouTube and just typed in like dad singing to child. Just to see what, like, what popped up. If you want to cry, just type that in and get ready. The one that got me was this big, tough-looking country dad. And he's standing up, and he's got it, you know, it's probably the only time this guy's worn a tux in the, whole, in the, you know, the past couple of years. He's, sit, he's in his tux, he's looking a little uncomfortable, he's clearly probably not someone who gets in front of people a lot. And he starts to lip-sing. He's not even singing, he's lip-singing. I was like, ooh, this is... Why does this have so many views? <laughs> it's kind of cringy. He starts to lip sync and then he begins to sign. He begins to sign language to his daughter, who's a sign language interpreter. She's not deaf, but she's an interpreter. And in the video, it said it took him one year to learn 
how to sign the song, I Loved Her First. And he stands up in front of everyone in his tux, and he's laser-focused on his daughter. And fumbling through this thing he's practiced over and over and over again. And he signs, I loved her first. I held her first. From the first breath she breathed, when she first smiled at me, I knew the love of a father runs deep. And a place in my heart will always be hers. I loved her first. He signs this to her. He humbles himself. He lowers himself before these people. He speaks in a language that's meaningful and matters to her. Do you know that that's what God does to, to us? God, who is like, out, stands outside of time and space in order for him to even talk to us. You know how, like, how much he has to lower himself to be discernible to finite human minds? And not only does, that, does he do that, but Zephaniah says he does that and he sings. Sings over you. That is what God is like. He lowers himself so that we can know him. He's all powerful, all knowing, holy, 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 and yet he stoops to us. He's with us, he saves us, and he sings over us. So, seniors, remember as you go out to wherever God is taking you next, God is with you. He delights in you. Staff. Underclassmen. Tell people about Jesus. Don't stop. The Lord your God came into this world. He's good. And he loves sinners. And he took on flesh to save this place and redeem it. I am so encouraged, freshmen, by you, sophomores, juniors, by you. I was telling, I called one of our alumni on the way over here, and I was telling him, he's like, Are you, is it weird leaving? I was like, yeah, it's weird, but you know what? I'm so excited about who's going to be here next year. I'm excited about the staff, I'm excited about our new campus minister, and I'm excited about the students. Carry the torch. Be a light to this place. And tell people the good news about King Jesus. We pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son as the last word. And um, that he is all that we need to be saved. We thank you that, Jesus, you took on the wrath that we deserved um, so that we could be spared. And I pray that you would give us the faith to believe. I pray that you would give that to any student here tonight who does not yet know you. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.